Well, beloved, please uh, direct your attention with me to Isaiah chapter 44, verses 21 to 23. Isaiah 44, 21 to 23. And for the next five weeks, I'll be uh, preaching God's word to you, and we're going to be continuing to move through Isaiah. We've kind of intermittently been in this portion in the 40s of Isaiah, uh, really for a few years, kind of intermittently for these, some of these summer series. So we'll be picking up where we left off here. And I do want to thank you. God has indeed been faithful through many of your prayers. If you are on the RCG prayer email group, you've, you've seen my asking for prayer about an eye issue that I've been dealing with over the last couple of days. And it's been an adventure, but God is, I'm here. <laughs> I have a sermon. I trust this is what God wants us to hear today. And uh, God has been providing. I, I got some medical care yesterday, and it seems like the low point might have been yesterday afternoon, evening, and it, and it looks like there's maybe a little bit of, of improvement. So uh, thank you for your prayers and concerns, those of you who, who reached out. And please continue. I would appreciate ongoing prayer. But um, this morning we're looking at Isaiah 44. I'm going to read our text and then pray for God's blessing before we get going. This is the word of the Lord. And by the way, in case you're not already there, if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats in front of you, you'll find this passage on pages either 566 or 605, depending on which edition you're using. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your prophet Jeremiah tells us that your word is like fire and like a hammer that shatters a rock. Only your word can break up stony hearts and make them soft before you. Only your word can burn like fire, burning up the impurities in our hearts, exposing us before you and cleansing us. You also say that your word is like seed that, that is sown in soil and over time you bring about growth, you cultivate growth, and you produce fruit. You produce an abundant harvest. We plead with you that your word would do all these things among us today, that you would break hardness, that you would cleanse impurity, that you would cultivate by your life-giving spirit in us all manner of Christ-likeness, virtues like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. We pray, God, that you would give me faithfulness in my proclamation, give me clarity and wisdom, and give us all alertness to hear what you have to say to us so that you might continue building us up in Christ. For the sake of his name we pray. Amen. Despite our profession of faith, and despite our identity as Christ's people, our hearts easily drift from God and latch on to various idols just as we prayed about, just as we heard about in Ephesians chapter 5. The Lord fades from view, and other sources of security emerge 
promising us refuge in exchange for our trust. Money, health, entertainment, the approval of others, and so on. And sometimes it's like we're under a spell or we're addicted to a substance. God just seems so distant from our view. And these false gods seem so attractive, so available, so desirable. And and like an addict, our whole world can become wrapped up in obtaining and keeping these objects of our desires. And yes, just like a substance addiction, our idolatry habit can, can shape our fears and our thoughts and our words, our actions, our priorities, our, our vision of the world, our sense of what's true. So if this is our condition, what are we to do? What do we need? What we need is idolatry detox. We need the Lord to address our hearts with truth that restores our orientation to reality and returns us to our senses and recalls us back to fellowship with Him. And to that end, this morning, the Lord has a word for us in these, these verses. This is what we might call idolatry detox. God is uh, approaching us, and we may be in some form of this, this spell or this addiction, we could call it metaphorically. And God is drawing near to us to issue three calls to detoxify our hearts from idols and draw us back to him. God issues three calls to detoxify our hearts from idols and draw us back to him. But before we hear what those three calls are, we need to go another level deeper. Because if God's invitation to us, return to me from idols, is going to really convince our hearts, then we're going to have to see how God himself satisfies the deepest needs and longings of our souls. It's not just don't do this, do this instead. We have to see how God meets our deepest needs. Since ancient times, uh, theologians and philosophers have identified three timeless universal values of being that are ultimately rooted in God himself, but in which all created things participate in some measure. And these things are called truth, goodness, and beauty. You may have heard of this. They're called the transcendentals. Truth, goodness, and beauty. There are these things that are they're immaterial, they're timeless, they're wrapped in the being of God, and they particip- everything that exists participates in them. And I would argue that every time an idol is appealing to our hearts... It's pulling us by one or more of these strings. It's claiming to offer us the opportunity to know and trust what's true or the opportunity to place our hope in what's good or the opportunity to adore and love what's beautiful. So let's just say you're hooked on the idol of entertainment. What's going on? Is it enough to say you're simply a lazy couch potato or an undisciplined screen scroller. (laughs) Nowadays, it is more likely to be that. Is that all that's going on? No. There's always more going on. Somehow or another, what this behavior indicates, if this is what's going on in your life, it indicates that somehow your heart has been drawn to seek truth or goodness or beauty in these places. Maybe it's the lust to be informed by the news. I have to know everything that's going on. 
I can't be fooled. Maybe it's the pleasure of beholding some form of beauty. Maybe it's the unstated belief that a life of easy consumption is a good and blessed life. So that's how these dynamics work. That's what's happening when idols are drawing at our hearts. So how is God going to detox us from idols? By showing us that he, the eternal creator, is the true source of all truth and goodness and beauty. He's going to appeal to these deep longings and needs of our souls because our souls were in fact made to commune with him. So here are God's three calls to detoxify our hearts from idols and draw us back to him. The first is in verse 21. It's an appeal to truth. Remember me because I remember you. This is God's appeal to truth. Remember me because I remember you. Verse 21. He says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. The first feature we encounter here is a call for Israel to remember these things. And we ought to ask right away, what things? Allow me a moment to orient us to the context. Isaiah is prophesying to the kingdom of Judah. And because of their great and persistent sin, he finally hit the point in chapter 39 of declaring to them God's message of future exile. They have utterly failed the Lord's covenant, and so the Lord will spit them out of his land. And a few generations down the road, the Babylonians will indeed conquer the city of God and overthrow the temple of God and take into exile the people of God. But just as soon as God, through Isaiah, made this dire prediction in chapter 39, then in chapter 40, God pivoted into this long discourse of looking beyond the exile to give his people hope in his future redemption. And this promise of salvation has a very clear so what attached to it. He's, he's pointing their hope forward beyond the exile. And the so what of it is, if God is the Redeemer, if God is the Holy One of Israel who sovereignly controls all of history by his transcendent greatness over heaven and earth, then Israel needs to come away from its vain idols. Come away from your vain idols. So these themes have woven together throughout this section of Isaiah. Idols do nothing. The Lord alone guides history. The Lord alone saves. And zooming in a little bit, today's passage is God's closing appeal to this contrast that began back in verse 6 of chapter 44. And in verses 6 to 8, he essentially said, I alone am God. I'm the Redeemer. I'm your only rock. I alone guide history, declaring what will happen. There's no other God but me. You can even glance at that text and see that. It ends, he says, is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Then in verses 9 to 20, he carried out an extended satire about the idiocy of idolatry. The idols are in every way the opposite of God. Idols don't create and care for their worshipers. Their worshipers create and care for them. So there's this depiction of this craftsman making a wooden idol. And it just brings out these features that are so opposite of God. These gods aren't sovereign over creation. They're part of creation. They're cut from 
a block of wood that could just as easily have been burned for firewood. So in view of the stark contrast between the Lord, verses 6 to 8, and the idols, verses 9 to 20, God, in in our verses, verses 21 to 23, God is making his closing appeal for this whole section. So that's what he means by remember these things. Remember my unique, unrivaled divine nature. Remember that I'm the true God and your idols aren't. And so when God tells Israel, you are my servant and I formed you, these two are familiar threads that we've seen several times in this section of Isaiah. And in saying these things, he's reorienting his covenant people in their view of reality. I made you. Your false gods didn't make you. I made you. And I made you for a purpose. To be my servants. To bear witness to the world of who I am. And perhaps the clearest description of their calling as his servants came back in chapter 43, verse 10. When he says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Do you hear that kind of truth and knowledge language? Your vocation is to know me, to believe me, to understand that I am he, and to bear witness of me. Why does he call, in this context, verse 21, these these straying people, and he's appealing to them to come back, why does he call them my servant? I think it's kind of like, if you were to be walking around in a hospital, and you enter the break room, and you see a doctor who's on duty, a physician on duty, sleeping, drunk. And you're like, whoa! (laughs) And you were to say, Doctor, like you might emphasize, doctor, what are you doing? You use that title really emphasizing the position precisely because he's behaving so far beneath his proper dignity. Or if you saw a pastor doing something unseemly, you might say, pastor, you know, something like that. My servant, he's saying, remember your vocation. Remember me and be done with your idols. So to detox from idols, we need to have a heart drawn back to the truth. The truth that the Lord alone is God. The Lord alone made heaven and earth. The Lord created us as human beings in his image. And he formed us as a people in covenant with himself. He alone possesses what Paul will later call his eternal power and divine nature. He alone rules history with a sovereign hand. He alone knows the end from the beginning. That's the point he makes repeatedly in this part of Isaiah. Because he is sovereign over history and because he's sovereign over heaven and earth, he alone predicts later events from before they happen. He alone is self-sufficient and self-existent, not depending on anything outside of himself, but in fact, he being the one on whom heaven and earth entirely depend for their moment-by-moment existence. I am he. Remember, remember, remember that this is who your God is. Friend, your heart wants to know truth. There's a lot I don't know about you, and we're all a very diverse group of people with very diverse interests and temptations, but I know that your heart was made to want truth. God made you that way. And the idols that tempt our hearts offer truth. They promise truth. 
They entice us with promises that with them we will truly understand the world. Sounds a lot like Satan in the garden, essentially saying, just eat this fruit and you'll truly know for yourself. But God is calling us away from their siren song with this reminder, besides me, there is no God. Remember who he is, friends. Idols never appeal to us more strongly than when our hearts have lost sight of the character of God. When God has become shrunken in our vision, his transcendent greatness has faded from view. And though he does appeal to his identity here as the one true God, it's not simply the abstract knowledge of this truth of who he is. It's a call in verse 21 that's rooted in relationship because he says, you will not be forgotten by me. You will not be forgotten by me. Yes, I'm sending you far away into exile. You won't be forgotten by me. Yes, you drift away from me and and turn to idols. You won't be forgotten by me. When we're undergoing God's discipline, as they were about to do, it can be so easy to interpret these difficulties as though God were against us or God were abandoning us. But here he's saying, on the verge of exile, he's saying to Israel, I've not forgotten you. I will not forget you. This is who I am. This is the truth. So come away from idols. Remember the truth of who God is. He's our all-powerful creator. And hear this word of assurance that he hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forgotten you, Christian. So God's first call to detoxify our hearts from idols is an appeal to truth. Remember me because I've remembered you. The second call to us, the second appeal, is an appeal to goodness. Return to me because I've redeemed you. An appeal to goodness. Return to me because I've redeemed you. This is verse 22. He says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. The main thing God is doing in this verse is to remind his wandering people of how good they have it back home with him. Note that all in this verse, all of God's actions are described as things he's already done in the past. I have blotted out your transgressions. I have blotted out your sins. I have redeemed you. The one thing he tells them to do is come back. Come back, return to me. Redemption is coming to the rescue of one who's in a dire, helpless situation. And the precise way that the Lord has done this, he's redeemed Israel, is clear in the first half of the verse. He has wiped away their sins. Now, earlier on in Isaiah, in various places, God has gone to great lengths to show Israel that its sins are very real, very formidable, very ugly. Uh, chapter 1 leads out with this, this barrage of, of condemnation against Israel. And nevertheless, they're as easy for God to wipe away as clouds and mist. That's the, the, the point of that imagery. It's this easily swept away in the hand of God, like clouds and mist, like they were never there. So fundamentally, he's describing a redemption from sin. The geographic exile and return of Israel, these are not the ultimate issues. Whether or not they get to live in the land, this is not ultimate. This is actually more of a symbol of the spiritual issue, the distance that our sin creates between us and God, and the redemption that God would later provide in Christ. 
In one sense, all of us in sin have been exiled to the far country. And it's only Christ who brings us back, who restores us to God. We hear of Christ the Redeemer in various places. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Paul says that Christ Jesus became to us redemption from God. And also in Ephesians 1.7, he writes that in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. That's right here in verse 22. Redemption, which is forgiveness. God wiping away transgression. So God's great answer to his people's persistent sin is the cross of his son. God has sent a redeemer to wipe away our transgressions like a cloud. So as we walk through this section of Isaiah, we need to keep one eye. This is kind of how it works. Keep one eye on the historical issue of exile and return. And the the historical theater of God's sovereign redeeming grace. But at the same time, we keep our other eye on the universal issue of this spiritual distance from God that our sin creates and the redemption that's in Christ, which ultimately enfolds all the nations into it. And yet, as I brought up a moment ago, look at the verb tenses in verse 22. The basis of redemption, yes, is the cross, which from the standpoint of this text is the future, coming hundreds of years later. And yet God describes it as already done. I have redeemed you. What the Lord is doing here, what he means is that his assurance is, his redemption is so sure that even though Christ hasn't yet secured it in time, in history, God is already dispensing its benefits and inviting people to rest under its shade. It's as good as done. And notice that he doesn't say, return to me because I will redeem you. Return to me and I will redeem you under that condition. Return to me because I have redeemed you. His redemption comes first and then his people's return. And though we're on the other side of the cross, that great uh, central event of redemption, this time order is still significant in God's message to us today. My salvation for you precedes your coming to me. And not only precedes it, it motivates it. You come because I've already made every provision to restore you. Compare, if you will, how, these, how welcoming these two dinner invitations sound. First, you have someone saying, the table is set, come and enjoy the banquet. Or secondly, sure, you can come in, we can whip something up, we can figure something out. Which of those sounds more inviting? When the dinner is already made, the table is already set, just come in and enjoy it. God doesn't whip anything up in response to his people's repentance. He consistently stands before us saying, I've made every provision to erase and wipe away your sins. Come back to me. Come back. Christian, if you've been wandering from God into idols, you might feel a sting of conviction. That would be a good thing. You might feel distant from God. That would be only natural. But what would it look like to return? What is his disposition toward you? Don't think that you come back to God to get him to love you. It doesn't work that way. Romans 2, 4 says his kindness leads you to repentance. He draws at your heart with love. Come back because he loves you. 
So God wants us to stop worshiping idols and return to him with our full devotion of heart, soul, mind, and strength. And not only to draw near him, but to stay near him. But as we repent and turn back to him, he wants us to come with full confidence that his redemption has gone before us. He has rolled out the red carpet to make our path back to him in the blood of Christ. When it comes to repentance, we tend to imagine God driving us back with a stick rather than drawing us back with a carrot. But that's what he's, that's what he's doing in verse 22. He's drawing us back. He's not frowning. He's smiling. He's saying, come, I've done everything for you. These are the glorious words of redemption, the glorious words of welcome in the mouth of God today for you. I have redeemed you if you're in Christ. Your sins are paid in full. Now, up to this point, I've primarily addressed believers who find ourselves, as we do, having wandered over to idols and need to return to God's side. But what about those of you who have never put your trust in Jesus Christ to begin with? Well, fundamentally, the call is the same. You too have wandered from the side of your creator, the one who made you to reflect his praise and glory. You too have chosen deaf, mute, blind, impotent, motionless idols, which neither created you nor have the strength to hold up your trust. We have all sought the good life apart from God. That's the essence of sin. The God who is himself the highest good and the fountain of all goodness in his created beings. And I hope that what you found out there is that apart from God, you are in a desert lacking permanent goodness. You're in a parched land that's filled with thorns and thistles. The experiences or the objects or the people or the status or whatever it is that you're really living for, if you don't know Christ, have these things caused your soul to flourish? Have they held up your hope? The prodigal sons and daughters, the far country has made great promises to you. Has it fulfilled its promises? So whether you're a wandering sheep who belongs to Christ's flock or you're an outsider looking in, God's word for you today is, return to me. Because in the blood of my son, I have redeemed you. If you'll just come. Let your soul flee for refuge to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Come home to God, your heavenly Father, and find his home to be a place not of rigid and overbearing rules, but a place of great bounty. Psalm 36 says, The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. This is the heavenly Father's home. So we've now heard the Lord, his first two calls to detox our hearts from idols. First, the appeal to truth, remember me because I remember you. Secondly, the appeal to goodness, return to me because I've redeemed you. Now thirdly, in verse 23, we hear an appeal to beauty. Rejoice in me because I have revealed my glory in you. An appeal to beauty, verse 23. Rejoice in me because I have revealed my glory in you. He says, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. 
and will be glorified in Israel. Now, verse 23 is kind of a pivot point. It it could just as easily be considered the first verse of the next section. And there, Lord willing, next week, we'll hear his concrete plan to restore Israel from exile. Remember, we're keeping one eye on the historical picture, even as at the same time it's pointing the way to the deeper story of universal sin and Christ's redemption for all the nations. So beginning in verse 23, for instance, we see God's no longer addressing Israel, but he begins addressing the inanimate creation, the heavens, the depths of the earth, the mountains and the forest. He's calling the diverse parts of his creation to bear witness to his redemption of Israel and to respond with songs of joy and praise. What is the point of this poetic move, invoking praise from various parts of creation? Well, I'd suggest three, three reasons to to do this, to to call to the inanimate creation. The first reason is it highlights the creator-creature relationship. It highlights the creator-creature relationship. Remember, this is the closing argument from a section that contrasts God with idols. And we read in verses 9 to 20 that the trees of the forest are what idolaters make their gods out of. So the Lord is here saying, no, trees aren't for making gods out of. They're for praising the God who made them. The second reason he appeals to the creation is that it illustrates the universality of redemption. It it illustrates how widespread his redemption is. And he uses two contrasting pairs to indicate a full range. That's the point of these, these contrasting pairs. The heavens above, of course, and then the depths of the earth below. And then he talks about the mountains, which would, you'd imagine a bare hilltop on the mountains. And then the forest would be kind of the, the wooded, lush lowlands. Every kind of landscape, every uh, kind of polar opposites of heaven and earth, everything in between should praise the Lord. Because of his great redeeming work, God deserves praise from every corner of creation. And throughout this part of Isaiah, we receive many signals pointing us to a worldwide redemption that affects not just Israel, but all the nations. Back in chapter 42, when we heard about the Messianic servant, in chapter 42, verse 4, we heard the coastlands wait for his law. That has to do with just different bodies of land with different peoples all around the world. As a result, in 42 verses 10 and 12, we heard the coastlands being called to praise the Lord because of the servant. And later on in chapter 49 verse 6, the Lord will tell his Messiah, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So the whole world praises the Lord's redemption because the whole world of men and women and children is eligible to benefit from it. And we even hear in Romans 8 about how the creation itself will be included in the redemption of the sons of God. So the second reason to talk to the whole creation is to illustrate universality of his redemption. The third reason I believe the Lord calls inanimate creation to praise him is to indicate how objectively beautiful he is. How objectively beautiful his redemption is. Even the mountains and trees understand how glorious God shows himself to be in redemption. Can we see it too? In other words, he's using the heavens and the earth to show us how we should feel about redemption. We the readers. It's like if, uh, they don't do this as much anymore, I don't think, but 
the laughing studio audience on a TV set, what are they doing there? They're cueing us. Hey, that joke was funny. You should laugh. The, the rejoicing creation is kind of doing that for us. They're cueing us. Hey, isn't God's redemption beautiful and praiseworthy? Shouldn't we, the personal recipients of that redemption, cry out with exultation as well? All of creation can see the glory of God in his redeeming work in Christ. Can we see it? Can we join in praising him? And I want to draw your attention to the last two lines of this verse. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. For God to be glorified means shining forth his inner beauty so that his creatures can see and enjoy him. It's a shining forth of God's intrinsic, his own glory in himself, shining forth beauty so that we can see God. And nothing more brilliantly radiates forth divine glory than the cross of Christ. This was the pinnacle moment in redemption carried out according to a plan that so fully brims with wisdom and beauty that we hear in 1 Peter that the angels long to look at it. So in detoxifying us from idolatry, the Lord calls us to see and revel in the glory, the beauty of redemption. How is it that ruined sons of Adam become favored sons of God? Only through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. How is it that cast off exiles come to live in the abundance of the Father's house, drinking from the river of his delights? Only through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. How do hard-hearted rebels lay down their hostility, finding peace with God and with one another? Only through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. How can the vile find cleansing? How can the guilty find pardon? How can the wicked find transformation? How can those burdened with sin find relief? How can those burned out find their strength renewed so that they mount up with wings like eagles? Only through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. My friends, once again, our heart is drawn like a magnet to whatever it thinks is beautiful, wherever we think beauty is to be found. And our world saturates us with imagery that claims to deliver on this deep need and desire. Will you find ultimate beauty in the great outdoors? Will you find ultimate beauty in illicit photos and videos of strangers' bodies? Will you find beauty in a perfectly ordered home? Will you find beauty in the clean lines and precise manufacturing of that item you desire? Will you find beauty in the prospect of relational bliss with friends or spouse or children? Well, this morning the creation is bearing witness and calling our eyes away from itself. In the song of the heavens and the glad shouts of the earth beneath, we hear this message. The invisible God has shown forth unparalleled beauty in redemption. In the cross of Christ in the eternal life that he gives to all who believe in him. See and rejoice in what he has done. The creation is not meant to receive our praise. The creation is meant to point us to the creator and redeemer who deserves it all. So now that we've seen all three of God's calls to detoxify us from idols, let's spend a moment considering how his word to us this morning might look in action. 
So fin final item we'll consider is how does it look in action? We've seen the Lord make these three appeals relating to those three universal values that transcend all of creation, truth, goodness, and beauty. God's appeal to truth was a call to remember the reality of who he is, the only true God who never forgets his own. God's appeal to goodness was an invitation to join the abundant feast in his house. He set the table of redemption and he now beckons us to come in from the dehumanizing ravages of idolatry. And his appeal to beauty points us to the glorious redemption in Christ. And it's a beauty that resonates throughout the whole creation, inviting us to see and revel in its wonders. So how might this three-pronged argument to our hearts actually work to free us from idols, even this week? One helpful idea is to, whenever you feel a competitor tugging at your heart, tugging you away from God, Ask yourself this important diagnostic question. Which of these three values, truth, goodness, or beauty, is this idol promising me right now? What is, what is really going on? What is the real kind of lowest level of the appeal that this idol is making to my heart? Which heart strings is it pulling for me? Is it offering me an accurate understanding of reality? Is it offering me some form of a life of abundance or some way of enjoying beauty? Now, God's creation legitimately does reflect his own truth, goodness, and beauty. And it's good for us to find these values and enjoy them as we find them in the world. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about being drawn away from the creator. We're talking about idols. Being drawn to, to put the creature in place of the creator in our hearts. So once we've identified how this idol is appealing to our hearts, the next question to ask is, how does this offer of truth or goodness, or beauty, compare with what I find in the Lord himself? How does this offer compare with what God himself is, and what I find in him? And in order to feed our hearts with the superiority of the genuine article, we have resources like these three verses and many other texts of scripture available at our disposal. We might need to camp out in verse 21, meditating on the truth the character of God and how utterly unlike any created thing he is. Any created thing that, that stands as a rival to God will utterly fail to lead us to the truth. Back in verse 9, the idol worshipers are described as those who neither see nor know. Idols blind us. Only in God's light do we see light. So tell your heart that. Instruct your heart. It's only in God that I find truth. Or we might need to camp out in verse 22, med meditating on the goodness of God's invitation to come in and enjoy redemption. Every other refuge has failed us, hasn't it? Every other store of bounty eventually becomes a soul-destroying addiction, doesn't it? Only in God are true bounty and goodness found. Only in Him does our heart finally rest and say, I have enough. Or we might find a need to camp out in verse 23, meditating on the beauty of a God who redeems sinners. Nothing in all the created world can supply our hearts with this kind of fathomless awe and joy. So these verses, for instance, and many others like them throughout the pages of Scripture, are the resources that we need to counsel our own hearts and to counsel one another's hearts to draw us away from idols to serve the living and true God. 
This morning, friends, God has issued these three calls to detoxify our hearts from idols and draw us back to him. He said to us, remember me because I remember you. He said to us, return to me because I've redeemed you. And he said, rejoice in me because I have revealed my glory in you. He is inviting us into rehab to kick these old idol habits and get our feet under us again. Each of these calls is bathed in grace. Each of these calls begins with God's initiative and invites us in from the ravages of lesser substitutes. Is there a God like me? There is no rock. I know not any. Let's pray. God, we confess with you that there is none like you. We have experienced the emptiness of lies that our, that our idols offer us. We know there's no truth to be found apart from you. There's no goodness to be found apart from you, nor is there beauty. But in you are all these things limitless, fathomless. Thank you for the great redemption that you've given in the cross of Christ. For all sinners who will turn to him in faith and repent of sin. We marvel at the bounty of your offer of life. And we pray that you'd please cause any who don't know you yet, who don't know Christ yet, to turn even now today and find your salvation. We pray for all of us that you'd instruct our hearts, that you'd wean us away from these substitutes. Cause us to remain near to you in faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.